Welcome to the GP Partners Palliative Shared Care podcast series. Well, welcome everybody to the uh, first podcast of the GP Partners Palliative Shared Care Program. My name is Russell Shute and I'm one of uh, three GP advisors to the program. And uh, we're lucky for this podcast. Uh, our first podcast to have Hugh Grantham, who is head of the School of Paramedics. Is that correct, Hugh? Or how do I, how do I, uh, how do I introduce you? Um, my current uh, uh, job description is Professor of Paramedics for... Flinders University, yeah. but uh, got a past in a number of places. Yeah, and what's your? You've also got a role with SA Ambulance Service, haven't you? Yeah, for 18 years or so, I was the medical director of the ambulance service, and I still have a very strong link with them. Um, currently, I'm a senior advisor to them, but I particularly look after the extended care paramedics, who are the people who in fact are the outreach or the acute outreach arm of our palliative care services. So we've got this unique relationship between paramedics and palliative care, which I don't think happens in any other state. Would you like to talk a little bit more about that straight away, Hugh? I mean, we're we're very lucky here to have that uh, outreach service, aren't we? Because they can provide care in the home at any time of day or night. Okay, well, about... um or five to eight years ago, we, when I was still medical director of the ambulance service, we created the extended care paramedics, and we took the most senior intensive care paramedics, so the most senior of the highest level, um, and then we um, built on that. And the philosophy we've built on is that they're not there to be an isolated unit; they're part of the health system. So they relate to GPs, and many GPs will have had letters from them and phone calls from them. And the fact that they get a formal letter and a formal handover is because that's the ethos we've had. And so from that then has grown a relationship with the palliative care uh, community so that they will often be the the person who steps in at 3 o'clock in the morning when somebody wanted to stay home but it's all going a bit much they step in and they help. Um, and they will liaise directly with the PAL care services so that we can um, get somebody over a bump and sometimes, well, most times, avoid an unnecessary emergency department attendance, which, and I work in an emergency department mm. now, and it's not the right place. No, absolutely. So do you think many GPs understand, currently understand the role of the extended care paramedics? I'm impressed that many, many do. And um, I teach a lot of of practices and I'm continually getting stories of when the extended care paramedics have got it right and been very helpful. So I think there's a great deal of respect there. And I think, in fact, many GPs would be up in arms if they thought they were going to lose them. Yeah, okay. Um, And as far as the patients go, the palliative care patients, are they introduced to the concept of extended care paramedics and what roles they may play in their care? I don't think that they get um, introduced in the the warm-up phase. Um, So often the first time they meet them is at the acute phase. Um, But nevertheless, um, we've actually published on it and we've had some very, very positive feedback, sort of 90% satisfaction rates and things like that. So uh, 
I think the thing about the extended care paramedics is that they're prepared to go outside of guidelines or protocols and liaise with whoever they need to liaise with to get the advice so that as a team we get it right. Mm. And it sounds like you're getting it right a lot of the time, which is very reassuring for a patient. So it seems to me that that's something that as GPs we should be um, explaining to them early on in the course of the illness that that this group of people could be involved in their yeah, care. Yeah, and, and I would look on them as, as part of the PAL care team rather than as a separate group, mm. and they just happen to come in a different colour vehicle. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> um, well, thanks for that, Hugh. And maybe we'll take a step backwards and, and just ask a little bit about you and your background in, in medicine, because you are a GP originally, is that correct? I would still be with my roots. I yeah. feel I'm a country GP. Okay. Um, and uh, my fellowship is with the college. Okay. Um, but I got uh, drawn into emergencies and disaster type stuff when I was a country GP. And then from there, um, I was asked to come to South Australia in 92 to um, work with the ambulance service. And I've had the privilege of watching that grow from uh, a fairly difficult time in 92, which was just after they'd had that dispute, um, to a world-class professional service. Yeah. And then from there, I've ended up in um, academia, but uh, I still keep my clinical hand in, and I regularly uh, uh, join in on the floor in an emergency department. Um, and I, I still enjoy treating patients. Mm. Where do you, which emergency department do you work in? Uh, I'm lucky enough to work in Flinders, which is um, busy, mm. but has got a fantastic uh, can-do attitude amongst the, the staff. But uh, I wouldn't um, sell it as a, the perfect place to be as a patient when we're jammed to the gunnels. Especially dealing with, as we are, the situation of, of palliative care. So you must have seen, speaking about emergency situations, you must have seen your fair share of patients that are probably in emergency and they shouldn't really be there. Yeah, that's a difficult area because I think one of the things that's a little concerning is that we've taken the idea of empowering patients and respecting their choices seriously. We've given them the opportunity to talk about it first, to document it first. And then I see people who are sent to an emergency department when they don't want to be there. And a friend of mine was telling me a story of her grandfather um, who is end stage and the palliative was actually not about cancer but about end stage heart and with aortic valve disease. And he said, no, I don't want to go. And he clearly said, no, I don't want to go. After six hours of persuasion, he eventually gave in because he felt that these were the people that were going to look after him Mm. and he didn't want to upset them. Um, So technically, he had agreed to go. Even though he'd made... (laughs) So he'd made very clear advanced care directives. Yeah, which rather than just being respected... You get people move there. So I, I, I would be a little 
controversial and say, I believe that these are people who are being assaulted. Mm. So when somebody says, oh, look, send them to hospital because, well, if they didn't want to go and the hospital's got nothing for them except a disturbing environment that's crowded, full of shouting, full of everything else, it's, it's the absolute opposite of the image of good palliative care and good controlled environments. So I think it's actually an assault um, with the best intentions in, world, in the world. But if you think about it, and we've even got law that says you have to respect somebody's choices, not set about trying to change their mind for them. So why do you think that's happening? Is it is it fear of what could go wrong if the person is left in their home or yeah, look, aged care environment? That's a really interesting question, and I've actually um, uh, working with a, a a talented postdoc researcher at the moment, and looking exactly at that question, why is this happening? Um, some of the things that sort of come up are um, policies for residential care sites. We have a policy that somebody who has a bang on the head and has had any anticoagulant must go to hospital for a CAT scan. And that comes from a coronial re ruling has then been interpreted via a number of people in a number of ways getting twisted all the way. So it now comes down to the line of some places where if you're on aspirin and you tap your head, you have to go to hospital. But if we just think that one through, if the person didn't want to go to hospital, would not accept intensive care, what's the point of doing a CAT scan? Because they wouldn't want to have neurosurgery. So why are we dragging them? <laughs> Absolutely, but um, I guess what you're implying there are there's some systems issues within yeah. the aged care facilities. So, that so that's one possible mm. reason. Another possible reason is just workload. And you have to acknowledge that residential care facilities are staffed to look after people when they're well, mm. not when they're when they're needy and poorly and therefore uh, if you've got a limited number of staff to a large number of people and it looks like being an intensive type exercise that's a huge motivation of saying well I just don't have the resources for this mm. um, then you have um, sometimes family members who think that oh, they couldn't live with the idea of not doing something um, so there's a whole lot of possibly interacting complex things. And this research project is to find out exactly how many folk do end up where they sh didn't want to be and what are the drivers. Because if we can understand the drivers, then maybe we can do things to improve it. Sounds like it's about um, creating a cultural shift, really, in patients' expectations, families' expectations, and the expectations of those that provide care in aged and, care facilities. And our expectations yeah. as clinicians. Mm. Um, you know, it's the, uh, the classic situation of a uh, blood test comes back with a potassium of six and it's attached to somebody who's got metastatic disease with lots of cells dying all over the place. It's quite reasonable for potassium of six and 
if I've got a palliative care directive that says I don't want to go to hospital, my comment was, how nice, why did you take it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but other people said, oh, no, 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 if I don't send somebody with a potassium of six to hospital, I'll be judged as poor doctor. But in actual fact, just letting them be and allowing nature to take its course in somebody who's going to have an expected death from metastatic disease would make much more sense, wouldn't it? Well, if, well it is actually good medicine, mm, not bad medicine. Mm. And this is something that we need to take pride in. Yeah. Uh, and I'm here to save a life. And I passionately believe in, in going in hard if I'm going to save a life. And But if I'm in a different setting and the patient's wishes are to respect their choices, then I'm here to give them a good death. Not to get in and put them through unnecessary stuff. Being prepared to let go rather than intervene. Yeah, I, I, I think that's the phrase, but I think the thing that I object to in that phrase a little bit is the let go kind of implies doing nothing, mm. whereas I would describe myself as an active palliative care doctor. Okay. Yeah. Rather than do nothing, I want to get in and do something that will improve the quality of their remaining remaining life that they've mm. got. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it, isn't it? Yeah. Um, well, getting back to, uh, you talked about, you gave an anecdote before about somebody who was sent to hospital despite their wishes, and I said well, had their wishes had their adjusted. W- adjusted, yes, by, by well-meaning people. Mm. Um, we touched on a little bit about advanced care directives, and I also talked about maybe changing our culture, um, around this. Have you seen much of a change with the advent of uh, advanced care directives and the seven-step resuscitation pathway at the ambulance end and what it's meant? Um, has it has it actually changed the way that extended care paramedics are working? I'd like to say that there's been a huge change as it's been implemented and certainly we see them now Um, and I think the extended care paramedics the answer is definitely yes and there's um, very early on in the interaction with a patient like this there'll be a question of now what did they want Um, so they get that Um, at the more acute emergency end um, it still suffers from the problem of well I didn't see the paper nobody produced it for me etc um, but uh, I particularly like it when um, one of the extended care paramedics uh, rings me to, to talk about a case, and they often do, um, and very early in the conversation is, and their wishes were. And that sort of will set the context of how we're going to deal with it. Mm. Okay, so there have been recent um, cases where, with clear communication of wishes, it has meant that a person is able to... Yep. stay at home Absolutely. and have the, have the care um, that they need within the home without having mm. to move them to hospital. I think we, we're definitely getting much, much better at it. Um, one thing I would try and, um, and ask for help here is that when people fill in these forms, um, it's very easy to get some sort of slightly nebulous phrases creeping in there. Um, and if 
with the medical knowledge of, of a GP, we can actually guide them and say, well, why don't you phrase it like this? It's going to make my a lot, lot easier. Um, one of the things that I th think is still interesting in our culture is that you'll find folk who start off with a clear, we thought a clear wish not to do this, but then four or five different folk have given their opinion and talked to the patient and talked to the relatives and this decision seems to swing backwards and forwards like a pendulum. I think for the patient and the relatives point of view it'd be so much better if we all started on one page and stayed mm -hmm. on the same page and the key to that one is really crystal clear directions. So keep me comfortable it sounds kind of a good thing to do but then you say well what does comfortable mean? Um, and the classic one is that if uh, an elderly patient falls and fractures a neck of femur, well, the only way I can really keep them comfortable is to get someone to put a pin in it. Mm. Um, so that one is legitimately, there is no other way to do it other than go to hospital. Mm. So, you know, there's a medical reason why they should do. <laughs> so would it be reasonable to advocate GPs meeting with their patient and relatives together um, maybe a longer appointment to actually nut out some of these things oh that would be so good mm. because well uh, I say it would be I mean there are some where it is so good because mm. it is being done I need to respect those who are doing it really well already mm. um, but if that was standard practice absolutely yeah it would be I, I, yeah, I agree. I suspect some people are doing it really well and others are maybe not doing it much at all. But, I mean, again, this is the reason we're having these conversations too. Well, I, I understand time pressures, mm. but I also understand that it is one of the most difficult conversations in medicine to have. Mm. And certainly when I was young, I was never taught to have this conversation. Um, and... We, we're much better when we teach medical students these days, but it's still a very difficult conversation. And the easy answer, of course, is to say, ah, oh, I found an abnormal result, refer. Mm. Yeah, I have the privilege of teaching fifth-year medical students just this thing, and their default position is to want to do something like that, want to investigate, want to treat. But I think with over time, with the right education, we are slowly moving things around I suppose so perhaps there's a bit of a cry not only for those starting out in general practice but for those who've learnt it through a lifetime of experience guys before you retire please pass it on yeah that's <laughs> very good advice well what about the We've talked about advanced care directives. The seven-step pathway of which there are versions within the hospital and also community versions where do you see the value of that particular document? Well, when we created that document, the thinking was that when you, uh, you were translating the patient's slightly vague wishes into something that could be much more concrete in hospital. So we've got clear triggers. This is the time to have it. It's set up so that you can start the document with minimal information, knowing that you can finish it in the morning when um, all the relatives have been found and talked to. Mm. Uh, so this is set up for the four o'clock in the morning type job. Um, 
but it also allows us to be very specific as to what's in and what's out in medical parlance. So the key bit on the, the document is if, you know, uh, would accept a transfusion, would not accept an operation, would accept an IV line, would not accept ICU and a ventilator, and you can get quite specific. Um, and this is something that you can't get into the patient's document because you haven't got time to explain them all the possible nuances. Mm. So a seven-step pathway, either the community or the hospital version, coupled with the patient's wishes, shouldn't leave us much room for ambiguity mm. if we've done it right. If we've done it right, okay. And yet, I guess, as you explained right at the start of our discussion, it's still going to happen sometimes. Mm. I suppose, um, because of people's best intentions or fears or, or once, whatever. But once you start to look at the specifics, then it's impossible to actually write one there. But then we now go back to the patient's views and values and the phrase of walking in their shoes. Mm. And once you've got the, the substitute decision maker actually making the proper decision as in their shoes well that's how you deal with that one mm. um, but again it's substitute decision maker is not the person who makes a decision it's the person who makes the decision that that patient would have made yes and, <laughs> and to and to really understand that role and, and mm. own that role yeah and be clear about what that person really wanted because um, I guess sometimes that would get tricky as well wouldn't absolutely it? yeah okay um, now talking about about the role of extended care paramedics before and so now we've got if we've got clear documentation an ACD a seven step and advanced um, extended care paramedic has been called out to the house of a palliative uh, patient um, are they then clearly in a position to provide good care they can act autonomously they don't need to talk to anybody else about well, the care they're about to provide? That's an interesting statement. Yes, they're quite capable and mm. very capable of acting autonomously. But in my view, yes, ev we all need to talk. Yeah. Because we all talk um, to each other. We work as colleagues, as part of a, a proper interdisciplinary team. Yeah. And so I'd say that even more you need to talk. The question is who they talk to. And so they'll be liaising with power care teams. They'll be liaising with GPs. Um, God forbid they can't find any of those or the patient's not on the books, then the call comes to me. But universally, these complex decisions we like to share because that's what we do as professionals. Mm. Um, so it's a share decision there. Okay. How do you think, from a GP point of view, what can GPs do to better facilitate this interdisciplinary discussion or communication? Um, I'd have to comment that very many GPs that I meet um, are already doing it well, and that's mm. actually just take the call, mm. talk to them as a, as a fellow professional, a colleague, yeah. um, and then there'll be some things that the GP will definitely know much more than they do about, particularly about that patient. But there'll be other things that the intensive care and the extended care paramedic actually may actually be able to throw back into the conversation. Mm. So I'll often get a, uh, a call which says, look, I've had a chat with, with the GP. Between us, we think this. But in fact, uh, Dr. So-and-so actually 
would be quite keen if I ran it by you as well. Okay. And that's that's all good. That's respect. Mm. And it's remarkable how few times you find yourself coming up with any different solution. Okay. But everybody being on the same page and everyone sharing it is good. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and and ultimately, what it's all about is better care for the yeah. for the patients. Pick so up the so phone. Takes a few seconds, um, and then. We all know what's happening. And then, you know, the GP who's looking after that patient, even if they have referred to pal care, mm. they know what's going on. And so when that family member comes in, they, they know the picture. Mm. If they get the call, they know the picture. Yeah, okay. Now, Hugh, I might um, I might just change the, the, the direction of the conversation to mm-hmm. the, into resuscitation. Um, yeah. Now you uh, you're on the Australian Resuscitation Council, is that correct? Correct. And so you've been involved with creating guidelines for this for for many years. Mm-hmm. Where do you think the community at large currently is with an understanding of resuscitation and and whether it's going to be successful and what what situations it's best used? Okay, so here's the other side of the the coin, and it's interesting that as as chair of the Resource Council for this state and I'm the convener for basic life support for the country, okay. <laughs> um, that I'm the one who's actually also advocating appropriate respecting choices. Um, but for those patients who do wish to be resuscitated and have not opted out, then I believe we should be doing it and doing it well and doing it hard. Mm. So the current guidelines are reviewed every five years and so 2015 was the last time we reviewed them and we will tweak them on an international level on based on what evidence we've got but just in case anybody hasn't caught up with it our current thoughts are we're going to do compressions 30 breaths 2 keeping that loop going and defib as soon as possible There's a couple of key points here. The breaths are definitely worth doing. There was a a school of thought a little while ago of, oh, we don't have to do the breaths. And I know that there are some people who are actually even teaching that now, which they shouldn't do. Um, Because we've got clear evidence that you do better with those pauses for the breaths. Uh, A very large study in America, multi-site, Um, should have produced this advantage for the continuous compressions. Nah, no difference. Now this myth, no not myth, this belief started uh, out of some work that came out of Arizona about 10 years ago where they had their standard rates, then they did the no breathing bit and they doubled their survival. Everyone, the media picked up on that. When you read the paper, doubled meant got up to something like reasonable. (laughs) So... um, we strongly suggest that for a health professional, if you can, we'll do the breaths. I will accept that, look, I find that distasteful, I cannot do it, in which case could just do compressions only. I will not accept that it's uh, an occupational health and safety risk, which is a line I've had played lots right. of times. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, so that's one point there. Um, the next point is the compressions went about 100 to 120, so pushing quite hard and fast. Um, we're doing about 30, and I keep saying about. I don't mind if you can't quite count to 30, but I want a lot 
and two, and a lot and two. Then we have the defib. Um, Defibrillators, uh, when I first started teaching, it was quite often you'd find a general practice that didn't have a defib. Um, I'd like to say that there aren't any general practices that don't have a defib now. I'd like to say that. Um, All I can say if I come across one is that should I be asked to give evidence um, in a court, then I would quote the papers which say that there is a 10% drop in survival for every minute delay defibrillating. So that's the evidence I'll be giving in court if they call me. Mm. <laughs> so, that, so I can't force you to get a defib, but I just say that's what I'd be saying. Mm, yes. It's <laughs> a fairly convincing argument, I think. Yeah. Um, but having said all that, on the other thing to do is say, well, it's going to be hopeless. Well, it's not hopeless. Um, I can tell you the survival rates um, for Adelaide now as we speak. So these outer hospital cardiac arrests, and we're not in the ICU or anywhere. And if your patient is still in VF and VT, and the best way to keep them still in VF and VT is to get the CPR going, then we're looking at a 47% will have a pulse back, of which about a third will walk out of hospital. So when I teach uh, a resuscitation session, uh, with GPs, it's not uncommon for someone to put their hand up and say, yeah, I've been both sides of that, and that was me last year. I can mm. think of quite a few of our colleagues who could put their hand up and saying, me too. Wow. So it's not at all as doom and gloom as some would say. Um, and another of the doom and gloom bits is, oh, he's old, he won't get a good result. Uh, there's some very good evidence to say that if you do survive a cardiac arrest, you get just as good an outcome as if you hadn't, i.e. your life expectancy has not changed. So if you're 88, no, you're not going to live for 30 years, but you're going to live the number of years you would have lived anyway. I think it's incredibly useful information because I th- I'd I, for one, was labouring under the misapprehension that it was all doom and gloom, really, so that it's good to hear those, and they're local, that's local study. Yeah, that's that's our local stuff, which comes from the ambulance Mm. cardiac arrest database, which is maintained regularly. And so adapting that to the palliative care situation where we're talking to people about resuscitation... Oh, this is somewhat controversial, I suppose, but do you think there's any role for resuscitation in somebody who has life-limiting disease? Well, here's where it gets interesting. There are times when it's the right thing to do. Mm. If I've got something that's eminently easily correctable um, and I've got a goal to achieve, such as I want to be around to see my granddaughter's mm. wedding... Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Let's let's be a flexible clinician here. And let's make a proper decision. So if you, because you had your high potassium, go into VF, and I go bang with one shot of a defibrillator, and you wake up and continue the conversation, fine. But if we're settling in for a long, hard fight, and the only place we're going to be is ICU, ventilator, and let's see if he's alive at three days. And I thought, well, maybe he he wouldn't want that. Mm. Um, so here we've got this very interesting thing of, I've just talked about a clinician making a decision, yet 
previously I was saying not respecting people's choices. <laughs> so again, we find ourselves a bit conflicted. I mean, the Act does actually allow us to do emergency treatment um, regardless if we believe it's the right thing to do and we don't know for certain. Once we know for certain that that person specifically didn't want defibrillation, well, then we take our hands off and we don't do it. Mm. And so it's it's quite a weird feeling in an emergency resuscitation room when everyone says, yep, it's gone into VF, we do nothing. We do nothing. And so having the ability just to stand back and, yeah. And, and, and that's that's where a lot of my senior colleagues do so well because they provide that that leadership to junior people starting mm. out in the profession um, who really struggle with this, we do nothing. Be prepared to respect the patient's choices that are very clearly yeah. written down. Yeah. So, so the times I'm going to resuscitate somebody in that situation is, is going to be a very, very few and very, very specific. Okay. Like, you, please decompress this tension pneumothorax because it's easy to do, and once it's done, there's no negative afterwards I might tr I might think about that but I'm going to think about things beforehand my big tip of course would be that if you're looking at a situation you look and say well what if so I try and think a couple of moves ahead like mm. a chess game well what if and then I've decided early on and shared with my team okay guys if they go into VF we do nothing okay so again it's getting back to really clear communication with mm. the people that you're working with and the multidisciplinary team and yeah. and acting on it. And, and the other thing that goes with this sort of line between acute resuscitation and acute palliative care, because I think mm. there are two things that, that like that, is I'll sometimes come across people, and I have come across this in another state, of a line of, we do not have defibrillators in aged care facilities, period. Mm. I thought, well, that's okay, but excuse me... Um, not everybody in that facility has decided they don't want resus. And how about the staff? How about the visitors? That's true, isn't it? So, yes, more, de more defibrillators. Um, well, I yes, I do it hard if you're going to do it. If you're it, going to do it, if you're going to, yeah, if you're going to... Uh, to do it properly, have the Going have hard. the tools available yeah. for you and, and make it and clearly mark them. I'm thinking, of course, of, you know, supermarkets and you know, football arenas and, and things like this. Absolutely. I was in a, a supermarket a few years ago and the call was Code Blue Veggie Isle. So I strolled <laughs> around to the Veggie Isle thinking, I wonder what they mean by Code Blue. And I discovered it was exactly the same as what we do. There you go. <laughs> the universal resus code. Oh, that's quite amazing, isn't it? Um, the other thing that you said that I picked up on was really under the law, um, well, the, the Act, um, Medical Treatment Palliative Care Act, we're very clearly covered, aren't we, in an emergency situation. If we can't find... If there is... It's unclear, hmm. it's an emergency situation, you're, you are not breaking the law if you go ahead and treat. Hmm. Where it, you're in a different position is where it is clear what they want okay and there are a couple of things there you are breaking the law if you treat against their wishes and if you don't try and contact and involve a substitute decision maker if that's the case so we're actually we're, there's a bit more expectation 
to actually do the right thing these days. Mm. That's, yes. And that's an interesting twist of that act. Yeah, but which is very reassuring for patients and yeah, their exactly. families. Yeah, yeah. It's good. No, but have I ever seen anybody um, sanctioned uh, or even investigated for not res- not respecting somebody's choices? I don't think I have yet. Hmm. That'll be interesting the first time that happens. Yes. <laughs> Let's hope it's still a while away. Um, so from the resuscitation point of view, uh, it sounds... And just because I'm interested in this and your role on the Australian Resuscitation Council, is there anything that is likely to change in the near future? You said you review things every five years. Okay. So currently we've set the the basic life support at 30 to 2, and that seems to be working quite well, and it seems to have stood the test of the last two checks. Mm. So we haven't changed that one really, except to slightly speed the rate up. Um, in the last two checks. So let's say that stays. Um, The role of drugs in resuscitation is interesting. I mean, adrenaline is the holy grail, unproven therapy, Mm. (laughs) totally empirical. Um, So there are trials going on in the world to see actually a proper uh, control trial going on in England. We tried to do one here, but various people couldn't quite cope with that. And so they sabotaged it by going to their politicians. Uh, but anyway, there's one there. So that'll be interesting to see what that one uh, does. But I think the the message I would say is that the key to it is early start, aggressive basic life support with no breaks. Then that's where 80 or 90 percent of your wins come from. Uh, if you just add a defib, which is now part of basic life support. So you win in the first few rounds for the majority, and then as you add the advances, you're chipping away at an ever-decreasing smaller and smaller fraction. So for a general practitioner uh, in their surgery, I would expect them to be good at BLS. I would expect them to be good at defibrillation. I'd expect them to use a, a laryngeal mask or an eye gel, so a supraglottic airway, to clear that and ventilate with oxygen. Um, I'd like a line, I'd like some adrenaline, and if we get as far as an antiarrhythmic, then amiodarone's the one on the chart, but lignocaine works as well. Okay. So if you haven't got amiodarone, some lignocaine. But by the time I get to that part of the sentence, we're now down to the last 5-10%. Mm. Um, the majority of the wins were with that early kickoff and that early defib. There's the only two that have really been proven to make any difference. Okay. Wow. Uh, thank you, Hugh. I thought it was very useful to, to get your insights into this, obviously, because of your role. Um, but that, and I think, interestingly, you know, we, some time ago, we talked about um, having uh, some palliative care edu- education and also talked about resuscitation. And I know some people said, well, that's silly. You don't put the two together. Um, mm-hmm. But in actual fact, I think today we've <laughs> talked about how. You know, the two are very clearly associated and it's something we have to think about, isn't it? And I think the other place that's interesting is when you look at a patient who is deteriorating and deteriorating patients in hospital are a place here, but they deteriorate in general practice as well. If you deteriorate in an acute setting, that can be the key for bringing in a resuscitation team, bringing in ICU. If you deteriorate in a palliative care setting, it's not 
a case of walk away, it's let's up the ante on your treatment because mm. the deterioration can be a breakdown in comfort. So let's let's be as aggressive in our palliative care as mm. we should be aggressive in our basic life support. Yeah. So the idea of, well, walk away, they didn't want anything done. No, if they deteriorated, the deterioration was usually because their pain control's failing and you have the ability to make their life better, do it. Yeah, that's incredibly useful advice. Um, so thank you, Hugh. Um, Hugh, we might wrap things up. I'm just wondering um, if there was some, I think there's been a lot of useful information there for GPs, if there were some take-home messages that you would like to hmm, I think, explain. I think the unifying message is be brave and do something. Mm. And that applies to both situations. I think that's what I'd want. Yep. And you've, and you've just clearly enunciated that. So, look, thank you very much, uh, Hugh Grantham. And uh, I hope uh, everybody's enjoyed that podcast and got a, a lot out of it. We will put some links uh on the podcast webpage to uh, Advanced Care Directives um, and the Seven Step Pathway. Uh, but until next time, thank you very much for listening. We look forward to you joining us again.